Well, as a pastor and counselor, I have often been asked, is this man the one for me? Is this woman the one for me? Which job should I take? What should I do with my life? Which house should I move into? And so, as a good pastor does, I break out my magic eight ball and I give my advice. No. In fact, I usually don't have advice. The common thread in all these questions is a desire to know the future. Have you ever been in this kind of a situation? A situation where you felt that knowing the future, knowing the quote-unquote right way to go, or the right answer, would solve all of your problems? Mostly gone are the days of casting lots, or discerning an animal's entrails to seek out and figure out who you should marry. Luckily, soothsayers are not on every corner. Some still utilize these methods, but hopefully they're a smaller population. The news tells us that that population of the occult is growing very quickly. But for the most part, the majority of the Western world has cast aside these ancient forms of prognostication and discerning the future. But we still want to know the future, don't we? As Christians, we want to know the future. I think this is what's given rise to a lot of aberrant theology that all it focuses on is what's going to happen at the end of days, right? The Left Behind series sells out like crazy. Why? Because we want to know the future. This last week, I found myself in the same situation. Rather than wondering how to best reflect and evangelize the character of Christ, I found that I wanted to know the future. Why? For my own control, for my own power, and for my own comfort in the midst of my personal situation. If only I could know the right way to go. And this desire, which often borders on obsession, is a pervasive thread throughout all mankind. Every one of us at some point in our life, or at many points in our life, will go through this. Why? Because we are dying to control our fate. We are dying to control our own lives. Really, we're trying to find a way to control God to control the future. Rather than serving God in the here and now and dedicating our life to him, we want to be in the know. We want to have the upper hand on everyone else so that we are not caught off guard or left behind. And this desire is so central to the human condition, it's not new. It's as old as creation. You guys might recall that the object of Eve's obsession the object for which she willingly traded unity and intimacy with the Creator God, it was an object of knowledge so that she might be like God. She might be able to control her life like God. In the days in which the Israelite people were dwelling, when Moses was first proclaiming the book of Deuteronomy in oral fashion, he was speaking it out as a a sermon, the surrounding nations were doing their best to manipulate the gods and to know what was forecast or fated for mankind. And this desire was, much like today, to protect and to prosper. That's really why we want to know the future, isn't it? We want to know how we can have the path that is the most comfortable, the most prosperous, the least painful. And so these people, they would go to various others to find out this information and to perform divine manipulations And they were known as the prophets, the soothsayers, the religious guys, the spiritists, the charmers. And no, we're not talking about Seth Spangle there. Bad joke. He's not even here to hear it. Hopefully he'll hear it if he listens to the 
the recording. Unfortunately, as we will see, the people of Israel, rather than rising above this trend, they succumbed to it and began to act as the other nations did. And this, as we will see, was in direct violation of their covenant relationship with God. And so in this last section that we take a look at leaders, we look at specifically the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders, the priests and the prophets, and what their role was in guiding the people. And what I believe we will find this morning is that just like Israel in the days of Moses, we too need to follow our perfect priest and prophet, Jesus the Christ. And we will see that he fulfills that perfectly and that we can turn to him for that. And this will help you in your knowledge of who Christ is. One of the major things we do in this church is to teach you, to equip you, and send you out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And I find too often that Christians, many of whom have been in the church for many, many years, they don't know the fullness of who Jesus is. They might know one piece. Uh, Jesus, he's made me happy. And that's about all they have to give people. Well, Jesus is your savior. He's your king. He's your priest. He's your prophet. And we'll look at that this morning. Before we get into the prophet piece, though, Moses speaks specifically of priests. And so in this section that we see Jesus, our perfect priest and king, that's what we're titling our, the sermon for today. The first thing that we see is provision for the priests. Provision for the priests. There in 18.1, it says again, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Interestingly, rather than commands of what the priest should do, what is specified here is how the priest should be cared for. Isn't that kind of odd? The king, he's supposed to write this Torah and memorize it and lead in it. The judges, they're supposed to judge justly. The priests, well, they're supposed to get provided for. And this is awkward because in a sense, I'm kind of in this religious leader role within this church, and you pay my salary, you that are members. And you've seen my salary in the financial updates every time we give a membership meeting. And it's odd that I'm about to speak about this, but just bear with me because it's in the Bible, so I'm going to teach it. Perhaps Moses felt that the law was so clear in Leviticus as to what the priest should do that there was no need for that here. What is here is more with regards to the justice surrounding the position of priest. And what we will see here is two pieces to this. The first thing is that it is just and right to provide for the needs of the priest. And at the same time, it is just and right for the priest to make sure he stays within God's provision through God's people and does not unjustly manipulate the position. Both of these speak to the justice that needs to be here, and that is why I believe it's in the law. First, let's think about that it is just and right to provide for the needs of the priest. In Deuteronomy 14, if you just turn back a couple pages and you look at it, we took an entire Sunday to study the topic of tithing. We looked at the fact that giving to the temple was ultimately a tribute to the king that you serve. It spoke to who you serve and who you see as king. And we also looked at it in depth in chapter 16 as we discussed the, the festal calendar, the festivals, and how tithes were associated with those as well. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to rehash all that today, but I would encourage you to go back and re-listen to it if you haven't and if you need a refresher. What we found out in the midst of that, as well as comparing it to the New Testament, is that there were three uses of the tithe, and one in particular that we're going to remind ourselves of today is that the tithe was to be used to care for those who were without sufficient income. 
It was an act of justice to provide financially for those who didn't have finances so that they could be brought up to the same level as those who were able to farm and bring in their harvest. And these groups were the poor, the widow, the sojourner or alien, and the Levitical priest. All four of these groups did not have sufficient income. Now, the reason for this with the Levitical priests is both practical and spiritual. First, because the Levites were supposed to be serving within the tent during their lifetime, 24-7, 365, they did not have the ability to go out and farm. Any of you who've ever gardened, uh, and some of you that are farmers, you know you can't really just do it on the side. It's not really a side job, right? And so it's not like they could go and be bivocational and have a farm and then also go and serve in the temple. Second, they were used as a picture of the fact that ultimately the land is not the highest prize. As it says there, the relationship with the Lord and ministering to Him within His temple is. And this is a beautiful picture of the fact that we are all called as Christians to be priests in some sense. That our highest good is Jesus Christ Himself. It's not the job that we have, the money we earn, the vacations we take, the retirement we're trying to earn. It is Jesus Himself. You can never be more satisfied than with Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, it seems that Paul carried along this same logic into what the church was to provide through tithes. The majority of the discussion around the collected tithes in the New Testament was for the poor, for the widows, for the sojourners who were lodging in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. But he also states in a few places that a portion of the tithes was supposed to be used for those who ministered to the local church full-time. In his letter to Timothy, for example, the Apostle Paul says this about how to compensate elders within the church that spend the majority of their time serving such that they are not able to have other employment. We read this when we went through the idea of tithe. It says this in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That's an idiom that basically means you should pay them. Specifically, or especially, those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And within this command is attention. On the one hand, it is often the tendency of people being ministered to and served to not give. As I've said to you many times before, uh, the statistics are staggering in the church that less than 10% of the people that attend church in America ever tithe. That is staggering to me. It's about one of the most blatantly obvious commands in the Bible. And if we are obedient Christians, we tithe. That's just what it is. It doesn't matter. But the reality is that many of us have been harmed by pastors and churches who operate in financial mismanagement and fraud. And so it discourages us from giving. So even if we want to be generous, oftentimes Christians give outside the church because they think that parachurches will do a better job of managing the money. But for those that are genuinely ministering, not trying to defraud people, it is a call to the people of God to provide for their needs. And I must say, you guys do a good job of this, especially lately. I've shared this with you before. Now, I hesitate in doing this because anytime I congratulate you on your generosity, the next week in tithe tanks. So keep being consistent, right? But you guys are a generous church. As I've said before, 90% plus of this church gives. Guys, that is miraculous. If you want to sign that the Holy Spirit dwells within this church, look at the way we spend our money. That right there tells us we are a church that, we're, that is healthy and that is growing. And so thank you for that. Well done in that sense. And so I'm not standing up here in any way, shape, or form saying, hey guys, you need to be more generous to me and to the rest of our staff. Not at all. But 
Today, we give through financial tithes. And it's similar to what was required here in Deuteronomy 18. Look at verse 3. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Now, it would be a pretty small diet if all Kelly and I did was to use the bread and, and grape juice that uh, we use as a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ every week. And so, in today's world, in 2019, we give financially through money, right? And so, rather than giving of the sacrifice or of our grain or of our tithe, uh, we give financially. And in Corinth, Paul was being mischaracterized because they were saying he was trying to take their money. And we learn in 1 Corinthians that, uh, that for this reason, Paul keeps making tents to support himself on the side just so they cannot accuse him of mismanaging their money. But he rightly challenges them at the same time. Why don't you guys turn to 1 Corinthians 9 with me uh, in the New Testament. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 9. And if you're a visitor today and you think, oh, yet another church talking about money. Uh, we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. When we hit something that talks about money, we talk about money. The rest of the time, we don't talk about money. Just ask anybody who goes here regularly, and that's kind of what happens. So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. They've written him and basically told him, and the, the thing that's kind of going around in the church circles is that Paul is greedy and taking their money. And so he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Uh, really, he means criticize. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles? And the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law... Say that, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. It is, for, uh, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher th should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So what he's saying there is he's saying, guys, pastors should be provided for in the New Testament church, just as Levitical priests were provided for in the Old Testament. And it's a good argument. Uh, when I first started the church, I was bivocational. I worked as an IT manager at Salem Health, and I would work around 50 hours a week there. And then I would do my teachings, and I'd meet with people during lunch hours as best I could. And it got to a point where we kind of looked around and went, okay, this ain't going to work any longer. I need to step over. And we had barely saved up enough money as a church where for a year I took salary and it got whittled down and then eventually we started growing and everything was okay. Um, but that's the reality is that uh, there's just not enough time in the day. I would love to go have another job uh, to earn money for my family so that the church could use my salary to put roofs on churches. But it's just not the, not the function. Now, on the flip side, 
It is probably also stated here in Deuteronomy, in our text today, in such detail because it is just and right that the priest not use his position to manipulate the people to his own material gain. So this is the flip side of the coin of justice. On one side, it's the, the pastor or the priest, in this case, needs to be provided for. On the flip side, the priest shouldn't take advantage of it, nor should the pastor. Throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, especially in Egypt, the priests were often the ones who had the largest amount of land holdings and wealth. They were known, actually, as politicians, in a sense. And they would use their position of supposedly being able to manipulate the divine realm on behalf of the people to fleece the people out of their money. And this was exactly what the Israelite priests were to stay away from. And you still see this in many, uh, many Christian circles where the anointed one up on the stage, he's got the bat phone to Jesus. And if you can just get in his good graces and he can pray for you and you can finally be in favor and then you can have a good life. You see this all the time. Guys, when a pastor promotes themselves as more holy than you or more close to the Lord than you or more able to manipulate God on your behalf, he is a shyster and should be booted out of the church and you should run the other way. When a pastor comes before you and says, I am a brother who is a human who is trying just as hard as you to be sanctified, and maybe I've been around a little bit longer. It's kind of like a person who's been around the hospital longer. You know where the green jello is, right? Okay. That's pretty much what a pastor and an elder should be, a person who's been around a little bit more and, yes, is working on holiness, but is not any closer to God. When I was in Catholic school, it always used to bother me because people would go up to the priest and say, Father, can you pray for me? And, and I asked a couple of my friends, why don't you just pray? God's your father. Well, because he's the priest. And I'd say, and? <laughs> I know what that priest does on Saturday nights. I've seen him with his bottle of booze down in the dorm, right? Well, no, he's the priest. He's... And a lot of people think that way about pastors. Guys, I, I'm not any closer to God than you are. Jesus died to bring you into reconciliation with the Father, just like he did me. And so don't think that this pastor, even though he's good at speaking the Bible or teaching or has really great prayers or seems very spiritual, don't think that they're any closer to the Lord. This was what the trap was that the Pharisees and the scribes fell into. They, who were supposed to be responsible for maintaining the people's obedience to the law of God, they'd fallen into the same pitfall of greed. Remember how Jesus went in the temple courts? What did he do? He turned the tables. He turned the tables of those selling sacrificial animals. The religious leaders had created a system whereby the poor people from the rural areas would bring their lambs or pigeons to be sacrificed so as to be in right relationship with Yahweh. They wanted to be obedient. But they would get stopped at the temple courts and the employees of the Pharisees would say that their sacrifice was not good enough. It was not spotless enough. And it needed to be exchanged for a small fee. Interesting. And the people were stuck. It's kind of like going to a Blazers game or a movie theater. The same candy or popcorn you would have brought for, bought for a dollar at the Dollar Tree is now ten fifty. Right? It was a fleecing of the people. That is why Jesus reacts with such anger. And so this law in Deuteronomy is a statement of a just tension. The tension of justice in providing for those who minister. And the tension for those who minister that they don't fleece the people. What a weighty and important topic where congregants should be held accountable to being generous. And ministers of God's people should be held accountable for not fleecing the people. And we need to accept that it takes all of us as a body to hold this just tension in place. That's part of why we have congregational polity and why you see every dollar that is spent on a budget and how close we stick to that budget is because we all are responsible for how this church utilizes our collective funds. Does that make sense? Yeah? 
give me some nods here if it makes sense. Okay, the couple of people you, that are doing this, you guys come talk to me afterwards. All right. Well, from there we move on to the next section. In the next section, we see the purpose of the prophets. Go ahead and go back there to Deuteronomy 18, if you're not already there. And starting in verse 9, we see uh, the purpose of the prophets. Let's take a look there. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. We have here a list of spiritual roles and methods that were used to tell what the gods were up to and to manipulate them to do the will of the human that was inquiring. Now really quickly, we need to reorient our minds away from the sterilized postmodern enlightenment worldview that we have in, in the West that says there are no spiritual beings and take our minds back to the worldview of the Hebrews. I find often that many of us as Christians, yeah, we believe in God, but the idea of a spiritual realm, we cast aside as if it's not enough science, right? You know, we're along the lines of Nacho Libre uh, and his buddy, <clears throat> I believe in science. The reality is, is that there's a spiritual uh, realm. And so this worldview says that there is one supreme Elohim, uh, which is the Jewish word for God, and that is the creator and the ultimate lawgiver and king. And we know him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But underneath his authority is a divine realm or council made up of spiritual beings that he has created and that we would use the words angels and demons to define. Now to the Hebrew mind, those not in service of Yahweh, we would call demons. They were known as lowercase g, small g, gods. We believe in the capital G, God, the big God, the creator God, Yahweh, but these demons were known as small g gods. And these gods, it was thought by pagans, were the ones that ordered nature and the activity of man. If the gods were for you, you would have a good crop, you would have lots of healthy offspring, and you would win the war you were about to fight. If they were against you for any reason, good luck in all three categories. And so in this dog-eat-dog -dog world of unjust and capricious deities who were constantly changing their minds on a whim, Man had to get a leg up in some way or form. Mankind had to have a method to discern the mind of the gods and to manipulate their actions. And these two desires are what make up the world of spiritism or what we know as the occult. The occult was based on trying to get gods to do what humans wanted. Now, unlike our current evangelical view that is very prominent, that is quick to start bonfires with Harry Potter books or cancel trick-or-treating for little children that simply want to dress up as their favorite Star Wars character, the occult of this day was concerned about the warfare between the gods. And Christians read this in a shallow sense and get super hyper about things like Halloween. Yeah, don't let your kids dress up as headless zombies. That's just good parenting. That doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, right? The reality is, is this is not about whether or not you should allow your kids to watch the cartoon where Bugs Bunny meets the witch, okay? That's not what this is about. 
What this is about is trying to manipulate gods as the pagans did. And Yahweh's whole point in this section was less about witchcraft and more about how Israel needed to realize their relationship with him. Now guys, please hear me. I am not trying to be an apologist for Harry Potter. I've never read any of the books. I'm not trying to be an apologist for any witchcraft or magic. Just stay away from it. It's pretty easy. What I'm trying to do is show you that the bigger issue in this text is that God was emphasizing through Moses that these things were abominations because they mischaracterize Yahweh himself. Remember who Yahweh is. He is the Exodus God who chose Abraham, sought out Abraham, came to the people, heard their cry of oppression, visited them, delivered them, acted on their behalf. Does he sound like a God who's far away and needs to be manipulated? No, he's a God who's near and already has our best interest at heart. The gods that the other nations believed in were terrible. They were terrible, terrible gods. And they did not show who Yahweh was. They were spiteful and mean and manipulating and abusive. Think about what Israel was supposed to show by who they were and how they acted towards God. This is Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses is saying, guys, our God is different than the rest of these pagan gods. He is not spiteful, manipulating, abusive. The God of Israel is none of these things. In fact, what he said of himself is the polar opposite. This is Exodus 34.6. I've referenced this a lot in Deuteronomy and I will continue to do so because this is who Yahweh is. This is what he says about himself. Yahweh, the Lord, passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, if you have father figures or authority figures in your head that are abusive, you will skip past the entire first two-thirds of that and you will go straight to the last third. And that's who God the Father is to you, a mean father about to abuse you. But the reality is, is that's a good father, loving, slow to anger. But when somebody comes in his house wreaking havoc, about to go after his kids, he will by no means clear the guilty. Amen, dads? Amen, moms. Sometimes moms are scarier. Get that mama bear going and it's like, I will no, by no means clear the guilty. Amen. Right? You know what I'm saying? And so the reality is, is that that is true. That's a good parent. That's not a bad parent. But we have to read the first part before we read the last part. This is the true God of the Bible. He is not a God who needs to be manipulated and tricked into doing your will. He's also not a God who hides his will from us. Dear brothers and sisters, when you feel as though God is hiding his will from you, perhaps it is more the fact that he has already told you his will and you have your eyes fixed on something else as an idol rather than simply obeying him in your current circumstances. Let me say that again. When you feel as though he is hiding his will from you, perhaps it is more the fact that he has already told you his will and you have your eyes fixed on something else as an idol rather than simply obeying him in your current circumstances. 
I love a song we used to sing. He has told thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to walk humbly. Right? This comes straight out of Micah 6, 8. And obviously I don't remember the tune or else I would have sung it to you. But Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. All right. Teachers, can you do that while you teach at your job? There's some teachers in here. Say it loud. Yes. Nurses, can you do that while you're at your job? Yes. Real estate agents, can you do that while you're at your job? Yes. Sometimes it's hard, but yes. Moms at home, can you do that? Yes. Dads, can you do that? Yes. When you're not even working and you're just hanging out with your neighbors, can you do that? Yes. What is God's will for my life? There it is. And it's the same for every single one of us. Which house should I buy? It doesn't matter as long as you can do that in the one that you buy. Which person should I marry? It doesn't matter and as long as the two of you can partner together for life in doing that and raising disciples in that. You see, the reality is he has met us. He has reached out to us and he has told us what he desires of us. And just for sake of repeating it, who should we marry? The one with whom we can partner to accomplish Micah 6.8. Where should you live? In the geography and in the home where you can accomplish Micah 6.8. What job should you take? One in which you work quietly and through which God can provide for your life, but more importantly, one in which you can accomplish this. Dear brothers and sisters, if you go through life looking for the job that will finally make you happy, you will be sad as you die. Because there is no job that will make you happy. That's why it's called a job. Right? I'm going to go play today. Well, that's what kids say when they don't have a job, right? Jobs are jobs because they're jobs. And the reality is, is that we have to stop looking at our jobs, our houses, our financial means, our material possessions, who we marry or who we date as the plan for our life. None of that is the plan for your life. Those are wonderful additions. The plan for your life is to glorify your creator. And so often, when we look to our external situations to be the solution, we lose submitting to Christ. And we find that we're simply just serving ourselves and trying to find the place that is most comfortable and provides our kingdom with the best outcome. God has already told us what he wants of us and what his plan is. And we don't need to manipulate him. Moses warned the people against this because in falling into these habits, they were mischaracterizing Yahweh and showing him to be like the gods of the rest of the nation. And this sin is as old as the garden. Remember in Genesis 3 what happened there? How did the serpent actually tempt Eve? Look at what it says there in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The bigger picture here is not just Satan's temptation, it is the way in which he is tempting Eve. And it's by insinuating that God cannot be trusted. You notice that? 
It's insinuating that Yahweh cannot be trusted. The one that created Eve, that gave her a garden and a husband, that gave everything that we all want. You see, guys, even when you have the garden, the house, and the vacations, even when you have the spouse, the Adam, right? It doesn't matter. It's still unfulfilling because you're still going to want to try and find more. And so what she wants is she wants the more, and all it leads to is destruction. Satan tempts her by saying that God is manipulative and insinuating that he's abusive and he only acts on his behalf, so she needs to act on her behalf for her own good. Guys, this is the core of the system we live in that is the kingdom of darkness. I can't trust anyone else, therefore I must act on my own behalf. Even God can't be trusted. I can't even tell you the hundreds of times in my life where I've been angry at the benevolent, loving God that I serve and cried out, what do you want from me? What is your plan? And then he quietly whispers, Micah 6, 8, through, through the spirit that's within me. Oh yeah, right. I'm just angry because I'm not getting my way. That's a petulant child, not an obedient servant of Christ. And I'm talking about me here. I wonder if that fits for you at all. And this is what Israel fell into. You might remember the story of Saul trying to go to a spiritist witch, the witch of Endor. I love that for you Star Wars people, right? The witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28 to figure out why God was silent. And rather than humbly going to God in repentance, he sought out a witch to tell him what God was up to. In that story, if you go and read it on your own, we don't have time for it today, but in 1 Samuel 28, it says he tried the Urim and Thummim, right? The things that they had to try and discern God's will. He tried going to the prophet. Nothing was working. So what did he do? He went to a witch. He went to someone who he had kicked out of Israel because it was against this law. And dear brothers and sisters, this is still the trap of the enemy. Through false teachers and errant theology and our own rebellious hearts, Satan is still trying to mischaracterize our wonderful and benevolent God and King. This last week, there was an editorial written by Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in which he is pointing out an, art, uh, an article in the Financial Times written about Joel Osteen entitled, A Preacher for Trump's America, Joel Osteen and the Prosperity Gospel. Now, you should all go read it because of its profound truth. But in it, there is a great example of the mischaracterization of the biblical God by a very prominent teacher that's in the Christian world that I hear, especially women, buying into her Bible studies all the time. In this article, Moeller points out that the author says this. Okay, he's quoting Luce, the author of the article, and Moeller says, Luce also cites in his report this quote from another prosperity gospel preacher, Paula White. Anyone who tells you, this is her quote, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is Satan. This is Paula White being quoted in the Financial Times. Moeller then says, someone needs to tell Paula that Jesus actually said that we should deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. If you get Jesus confused with Satan, you have made an eternally fatal error. Understatement of the year. Yet the entire superstructure of prosperity theology peddles false theology from top to bottom. Osteen is quoted by saying, if you do your part, God will do his. He will promote you. He will give you the increase, end quote. This amounts to an entire reversal of the gospel of Christ revealed in the scriptures. Nowhere do the scriptures tell mankind that if we just do our part, God will do his. 
Instead, the Bible reveals that God accomplished everything needed for our salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. End quote. Dear church, the reason I warn you against false teachers is not because I just want to be mean. I'm sure Joel Osteen is probably one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Nor is it because I just really want to see division in the church. I warn you because false teachers teach in a way that mischaracterizes the God of the Bible and leads people astray. In those areas of theology and scripture that have been hard to interpret since the beginning of the church, I am more than happy to agree to disagree with other men and women who teach within the spectrum of possible interpretations. But when people teach things that are so blatantly against scripture, like the prosperity gospel, that they are mischaracterizing the God I serve, I get a little antsy. And it is the job of true elders to fight for the true faith and label those false teachers as wolves that devour the sheep. And they must be stayed away from. Not because I think you're going to get pulled into their amazing teaching and I'm worried about you leaving this church. I'm worried about your eternal fate. By mischaracterizing the God who gave everything and believing that his entire plan in life is to make your life comfortable. That is not the gospel. Moses is clear in Deuteronomy 18. The people of Yahweh are blessed, not because they can manipulate him to work things out for their kingdom, but because they have been invited into his kingdom where he rules. We need to read this section of Deuteronomy and realize that, yes, the Christian is to stay away from the occult. True, absolutely. But more importantly is the underlying evil motivation of the human heart, where rather than submitting to the obedience within God's stated will of loving him and loving one another, regardless of who is involved, or where we are at. We want to manipulate his will to conform to our reign and comfort. And this, dear church, is the bigger evil from which we must repent. I would far rather you repent from that and still read your Harry Potter books. And when we, as the people of God, fall into this trap, thinking God is our servant rather than the other way around, he has faithfully provided this next leader that he talks about to speak to us truth. And that brings us back to Deuteronomy 18.15. It says there in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, Mount Sinai, the place where they got the law, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need to be afraid of him. Verse 14 should bleed into verse 15 and not be separated, because God loved his people so much that he was going to provide for them this role of prophet. Now, to be sure, other nations have this role of prophet as well, but the prophet of Israel was to be different. And this section speaks of that difference. They were to be one sent on behalf of Yahweh, and you knew him by two characteristics. First, they'd be like Moses. They would be men of character that reflected the heart of God. 
Men that were not driven to lord over the people, but rather to serve them in humble strength. Imperfect men, quite honestly, except for the true prophet that we'll talk about in a minute. Secondly, they were to be people that spoke the word of Yahweh. And so those that would come after Moses, they would speak that which had already been confirmed and proclaimed by Moses. And they would be those that, when they did tell the future, it would come to pass. This is important for pastors to get. I've heard far too many pastors try and proclaim when the rapture is going to happen. And quite honestly, that falls within this. We as pastors have to be very careful to proclaim something that's supposed to come in the future. An emphasis on this point that is too heavy will miss the point of the prophets. The prophets did indeed tell the future at times. But the prophets of Israel were so much more than that. The majority of what they were sent for was actually what can commonly be called forthtelling. This is acting in the role of legal attorney on behalf of God's law, bringing conviction to God's people that they are in breach of the covenant with Yahweh. And so to read them, to read the prophets of the Bible is to read God crying out to his people to step back into relationship with them. If you're a visitor today, or maybe you have been coming for a while and you don't feel you have a relationship with Christ, today is the day he wants to call you back to himself. His prophetic word is calling you into relationship with him. His death on the cross proves his desire to be one with you. He desires relationship with you. And if you desire to respond, you don't have to do anything special. You simply say in your heart right now, Lord, I want you to be my king, my priest, my prophet, my savior. And if you want to talk about what it is to bow the knee to Christ, to follow him as Lord and savior, I'd love to do that with you after the service. Well, there are many amazing prophets that came in this class or role over the years, and many of them are enshrined in the books of the Bible that we have in our hands. But even more amazing is that this section points us to one who perfectly fulfills the role of both a priest that provides and a perfect prophet. See, my last point today is this. Jesus is our priest of provision and the perfect prophet. Jesus is our uh, priest of provision and the perfect prophet. The priesthood that was put in place was established to perform animal sacrifices on behalf of the people when they sinned. And they would do this year in and year out so that they might be reconciled to God. But these priests themselves needed a sacrifice, and the sacrifice they offered was only temporary. All Israel knew that they needed a better priest to administer a better sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews clearly tells us that the better priest and the better sacrifice is Jesus, the anointed king, Jesus the Christ. He does not need provision. He is the provision of eternal life. Look with me at Hebrews. Why don't you turn there with me in Hebrews, New Testament towards the back. Jeanette, I lost my connection. Would you mind sliding over to the next? There we go. Uh, electronics, gotta love them. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 11 there. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? 
rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Who's that speaking of? Jesus. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. By the very fact that Jesus resurrected victorious over the kingdom of darkness, it means he can now stand eternally in the throne room of the Father's presence, mediating a better sacrifice on our behalf that doesn't need to be repeated. The cross of Calvary was the altar upon which God gave of himself so that the perfect sacrifice atoned for the sins of mankind. And because this perfect sacrifice paid the price for our sin, Jesus was able to give us the ultimate provision of eternal life. And Jesus was not only the priest that provides perfect eternal provision, but he was also the perfect prophet. In the book of John, people ask John the Baptist if he is the, quote-unquote, the prophet, referring to the prophet spoken of in our text this morning. Take a look at the next slide here in John 1.26, for example. John answered them as they asked him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The one he was referring to was Jesus. You see, even though there were amazing prophets that were men and women of God and that spoke on his behalf, none of them could completely fulfill the characteristic requirement of being like Moses because none of them could be the lawgiver and the mediator of a covenant with Yahweh like Moses was until Jesus Christ. But in the gospel according to Matthew, especially in chapters 5 through 7, Matthew pictures Jesus on a mountain giving a sermon, speaking the law of God. He is the better Moses, the new lawgiver, the one that clarifies for us the heart of God. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but the author intended it to be a picture of the new Moses giving us the truest heart of God's law. And then in that last supper in the upper room, Jesus took the cup and established with his disciples a new covenant, the covenant that's based off of his sacrifice, his blood. And this was not a removal of the old, but a better covenant that was more true to God's heart, fulfilling much of the Old Testament covenant, but leaving us in a covenant relationship with our God. Take a look with me at Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What's your life about, dear church? You have been purified to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus was the prophet that was just like Moses, but even better than Moses. He is the one that has established a covenant without end with those that are the true people of God. And Peter later calls this prophet, he speaks out and says, this one, this is Jesus. This is from Acts chapter 3, 19, after Jesus had died, resurrected, and ascended. He's speaking to the leaders, uh, the religious leaders of the Jews, and he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Peter calls the men of Israel to repent and listen to Jesus whom they had just crucified. And he says that Jesus is this perfect prophet who spoke the words of the one true and living God. It is to him as the perfect prophet that all mankind must listen. To not listen to him means that God himself will require it of that person. If you are a person in here that tosses away the, sides of Je- the, the, tosses away the words of Jesus or has little to no desire to hear them, God will require it of you. And those of us who know Jesus and still decide that we don't need his law, his rule in our life, his law of love, his law of justice, God will require it of us as well. We no longer have the positions of priest, prophet, or king in the leadership of the people of God because they're not needed. By his death and resurrection three days later, Jesus Christ perfectly fills all these roles and he calls us to submit to him and the leaders that, we, that speak his word. You guys remember the story where Peter, James, and John go with Jesus to the mountain. And they see Moses and Elijah and Peter start freaking out because, or uh, they see Moses and Elijah and Peter starts freaking out because these two heavy hitters of all of the leadership of Israel are there. And he wants to be, build three tents and have this party, but God the Father speaks from heaven and quiets Peter. And he says this in Matthew 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you listen to Jesus? And I'm not talking about where you think you're listening to Jesus, but it's really your own opinion. Do you listen to Jesus' words? Do you read them? Do you internalize them? Do you base your life off of them? And so this morning, I want to end with a few questions for you to ponder throughout this week as we look at the priest of provision and the perfect prophet. First question is this. Are you on God's mission or are you trying to convince him to be on yours? 
Are you on God's mission? Or are you trying to convince Him to be on yours? Guys, this is such an important question for every single one of us. I know we're almost out of time, but I just want to share with you really quickly. When I started this church, the longer I do this, I realize I was starting it for me. In my ego, in my arrogance. The longer I do this, the harder this becomes. Because all the fun goes away. And I get faced with the question of, okay, so are you doing this for Jesus or are you doing this for yourself? And I'm really thankful that the Lord is shredding that away from me as one of your leaders. And I honestly think he's doing that to all of our leaders. And the question becomes, do we serve because of Jesus or do we serve because of what it brings us? If you volunteer at this church so that you can write it off for your work or you can make yourself feel better, probably shouldn't be serving. That's hard to say because we need lots of volunteers. Do you serve because of Jesus? Are you on God's mission or are you trying to convince him to be on yours? I'm so thankful that the Lord shredded me over the last eight years so that I had to figure out whether or not I was going to be on his mission or keep doing my own. Something we all got to ask ourselves. Secondly, do you accept Jesus as your priest and your perfect sacrifice? This is for those of you who may not know him. And maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time, but you've never realized he's your priest. I thought that was a Catholic thing. No, he's your priest. Protestants have a priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. And do you pray to him as such, realizing that at this very moment, he's bending his ear towards earth, ready to hear you, to mediate on your behalf? Third question I want to ask you is, who are the prophets you listen to? Do they confirm their authority with God's word in its proper context, or do they make you feel warm and fuzzy? And that's why you listen to them. You see, the reality is, is we need to listen to God's word in its proper context. Because when we do, we will know that we're hearing God himself. Do not fall for every person and teacher that puts themselves forward as speaking God's word. There are a lot of false teachers out there. Dear brothers and sisters, if we are to teach you and equip you with the good news of the gospel so that you might go and proclaim it to those around you, then we need to get a correct view of who Christ is so that we can proclaim him in the fullness of who he is. Jesus is our Savior that has gained for us eternal life and praise the Father for that. But he is also the obedient king that we serve. He is also the perfect priest that intercedes on our behalf. And he is also the perfect prophet to the people of God, still speaking his word through his church and obedient servants within his church. And so as we go into a time of response and communion now this morning, I want us to think through, do we recognize Jesus as all those things in our life? I find that it's very easy for us as Christians to recognize the Savior piece so that we get to go to heaven when we die. But king, priest, and prophet, those are a little bit tougher. And so as you go to the table of communion this morning, as you sing songs to him, I want you to think through, is this the Jesus I serve? Or have I molded Jesus into someone that's to do my bidding and be on my mission? Because we need to repent from that. And we need to seek after the true and living God and the Son that He has sent by the power of the Spirit that He has sent.